I'm Sam Castro, and I'm here with my co-host Linda Cherry, and we are delighted to talk to you today about one of the most enigmatic scripture stories, the story about Daniel, who was an amazing prophet and um, had a number of miracles uh, represented in his, his ministry in, in the center of Babylon as he was dealing with, with all that chaos of Jerusalem having been removed and scattered. And uh, Linda and I have been talking about this already, and there's so many things we'd love to discuss. And Daniel, to me, has always been an example of someone who engaged in mighty prayer. And so uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about prayer. We're excited to talk about fasting and, and good diet. We're excited to talk about dreams and also being an example of, uh, of, of a believer being um, someone who's a little different or a little um, strange or peculiar in Babylon, being in the world but not of the world. I think, Linda, that's something we want to talk about, too. And then I think I'd also I'd love to talk about the difference between the church and the kingdom that's, I think, really clearly uh, discussed here in these chapters. So Daniel, one through six today, and I'm delighted to be here with you, Linda. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's so fun to be with you, Sam. Thank you. So I think the most effective way to roll through this is this, these are such good stories. I think it'd be helpful for us to just kind of talk through the stories, and then as we go through them, we'll unpack some of the principles that are evident in these stories. There's a reason they're preserved in ancient scripture, and they teach us so much about how we can have faith in God and about how he deals with his children here on the earth. Do you want to start off with uh, just telling us a little bit about this idea of Daniel being caught in Babylon? I think it's an important stage to set. Yes. And in fact, one thing we want to recognize is that Babylon came against Jerusalem three different times. And what's so amazing is that during that period of time is that even after the first and second uh, times of destruction, that the people of Jerusalem absolutely believed that they were not going to be fully destroyed as Jeremiah, Lehi, and so many others had prophesied. In any case, Daniel and his friends were taken away in that very first captivity. And they were targeted because they were from the royal family of Judah. In other words, they might have had some right of lineage to the throne at some point. So the Babylonians wanted to remove anyone that people might line up against uh, in terms of sort of overthrowing the Babylonians and following. And so we do read that Daniel and his friends are putting the care of the master of the eunuchs. And a lot of people are uncomfortable about that. What does that mean for Daniel? And most, most uh, Bible commentators believe that it liter it's very literal that Daniel and his friends were castrated or emasculated specifically because Jewish law was, is that if you could not have children, then you were going to be someone that was sort of accursed by God and you weren't going to have followers, especially with this idea of being put on the throne. So what always amazes me is that these young men are so uh, valiant in their staying true to their covenants and to their religious beliefs, despite hardship that I think most of us can't even begin to comprehend being mm -hmm. taken into the captivity, they would have undoubtedly, you know, been roped up and, and then to be uh, taken away from family, but furthermore, being put in a position where they, these guys never were able to come home again, and still retain this sense that they were a covenant people. Well, and I wonder how much of that um, solidarity that you see in Daniel comes from not only his faith in God, but also his recognition that this was prophesied of. There's examples of being in bondage with Joseph and with the other Israelites in, in Egypt. And so there's there's evidence that it's almost, I like to read this and think, it's almost like Daniel's like, hey, the only thing I got are the covenants. 
The only thing I have is my relationship with God at this point. And so he clings to it. He ties himself to the Lord and he's not afraid of anything else. And so you see um, in verse eight in chapter one, if, you, if we read that verse, it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So he's been emasculated. He's been defeated. He, he's downtrodden and, and, and removed from his place of comfort and position and home and family and all his connections. He still has his friends, but um, it'd be very easy for him. I think you used the word assimilate when we were talking about this earlier. It'd be very easy for him to assimilate into Babylon, but I love that it says right there, Daniel purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to defile himself with the meat and the wine of the king, even though that was what was that was almost, I think, like the consolation to these people that have been placed in this position of servitude is that they're given these comforts and he's refusing it because he doesn't want to defile himself. And this idea of heart and defilement, I think, is something that if you look for it, you can see it as a common thread in these chapters with Daniel. I think the blessings that he realizes are because he didn't defile himself, because he kept himself pure and because his heart was focused on doing what it could to stay connected to God. Right. Beautiful. And in fact, you know, one of the points that's made is how could he defile himself with the king's meat? Well, um, most believe that that meat would have been offered previously to a god. It would have been given in praise of a foreign god. And when you think about how many times people wait till they're in a position, in a work party, before deciding whether or not they're going to partake and participate in what's going on around them. And this fact, as you put it, that Daniel proposed in his heart. So from the very beginning, He's like, I'm, I'm going to keep the commandments. It also really shows us, and we'll see it in other chapters too in Daniel, he really knew his scriptures. He really knew his scriptures. And by the way, at the time that everyone else was putting Jeremiah in prison and saying he's a false prophet, Daniel is going to end up quoting Jeremiah and counting on Jeremiah's prophecies. So again, I think about the times that we live in, and uh, particularly for our youth, how do, how do we protect ourselves when we're going into a worldly environment like Babylon? And Babylon was considered the most astounding empire and city the world had ever known. And so he could have been like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm in the king's court. I, I'm going to live the high life, eat the king's food, and even be trained to be a wise man in the king's court. But from the beginning, he determined that he would keep himself separate and keeping his covenants. It reminds me of the original covenant promise in exodus 19 where the lord says you'll be a peculiar people unto me and we don't like that word but if we think about it meaning set apart a, a holy people a people reserved for god and that is god's intention for us and we'll see that daniel and his friends are blessed by making that decision absolutely and back to your question about protecting you know protecting ourselves the, the word defilement is interesting because we oftentimes put that in the box of the Jewish construct of you've become dirty or you've done something that has made you unclean. And <clears throat> I think it goes deeper than that. If you really understand the, the stage at this time and also the stage that's really uh, has a lot more light because of, the, of Christ's presence when he deals with defilement, when he deals with the lepers, when he deals with the, the woman caught in adultery, when he deals with the people who are unclean and possessed defilement really meant you have a difficult time having the spirit with you there's something that you've done to your temple that's made your temple impure 
And it opened defilement also opens up the doorway to possession. And it's that's a, the idea of possession is something that we don't really get into a lot nowadays. Uh, but it, it is something that I think is still very, very real and very, very rampant. And it's just more covertly concealed. It's not as obvious. And so I think Daniel's looking around and he's, and, I, and you see it in contrast between him and the other wise men, these other wise men who are like, hey, well, we can do anything. And they're clearly possessed by spirits that lead them to want to murder Daniel. So there's, there's clear darkness and evil associated with these men as they go throughout their interactions with Daniel. But Daniel's like, no, I'm not going to eat the meat because if I eat the meat and sacrifice to gods, it's going to invite evil spirits to influence me and take residence in my temple. It, it also, the, the, the focus on keeping that enmity between us and that, that the darkness, because the Lord did place enmity between us and the devil, I think that that is available to us as a blessing in a way that we oftentimes overlook by keeping the commandments. We're staying within the castle wall. We're staying within the protection of the Lord's covenant, the covenant path. And when we stray outside of it, when we at a work party do something we shouldn't, when we say something we shouldn't, when we do something that is complicated in the eyes of the world or something that is viewed as acceptable to us, but or to, to the world, but maybe not to the church, we, we remove that, that barrier. It's like we, were, we can remove it brick by brick, whether that be going and getting tattoos or going and drinking or going and looking at pornography or whatever it is, all those things lead to defilement. And it's interesting that that word defile in verse eight is connected to Daniel's heart in verse eight. And he's saying, I'm gonna keep my, my heart pure. I'm gonna be able to receive the spirit and let it guide me. And so he says, no, they have this exchange with the head of the eunuchs. And he's, he's like, why wouldn't you want to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine? And Daniel says, test us. Let's do a little contest and let's see how me and my friends show up. If we don't, if you give us pulse and, and oats and these grains instead of the king's meat, and let's see who's stronger and who's more capable and who's more fit. And I love the focus then shifts to countenances. And it says right there in chapter one that the countenances of David and his friends were, were brighter, you know, they, they, they had more, they had more life and light inside them. And you can see that in verse 13, he says, then let our countenances be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as, and as you can discern yourself, you'll be able to see it visually in our faces, we're going to look better. And then it talks about how that they, they did that. And at the end of the 10 days in verse 15, David and his, or, sorry, Daniel and his friends appeared fatter in flesh than all the children which eat the portion of the king's meat. So they're fatter because they're eating what they know is healthy and good. And I, I believe that comes from this idea of, that Isaiah highlights, let your soul delight itself in fatness. When, when we do good things to our spirits and to our bodies, we gain fatness in a good way. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Go ahead. And notice that he's not contentious. Look at the way he he goes about this, right? He's keeping mm -hmm. his stand, but he's very respectful. And I feel mm -hmm. like this is also a really good example for us because it seems like people today are getting more and more contentious and trying to make sure that their voice is heard. So he's like, you know, test me. Let, let's try this out. And um, obviously, he because of his behavior, he gains the respect of all the people around him because he's respectful. And I think that's something important to look at as well. No, I agree with you 100%. And, and you look down at verse 20, and it says, they grew in wisdom, 
and the, and, and the king found um, them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in, in all his realm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of, yeah. And they're going to the right sources. We'll see too. You know, these other astrologers, as you already pointed out, you know, they're, they're, they're going to a, a possessive type of source to try to get their answers. And that's still, that's still a, something that is very relevant today too. I agree. I agree. And um, yeah. No, please go ahead. Go ahead. Keep adding to that. I think that's a great point. Tell me what you're thinking about that. Well, I've just, yesterday I just listened to, um, and I highly recommend this elder Kevin P Pearson, BYU speeches devotional yesterday on the abundant life, really powerful mm -hmm. talk. And he, and he said that he feels we're getting really lax as members of the church in our covenants and specifically our temple covenants. And he said that what happens when we, when we are lax in that is that we lose the influence of the Holy Ghost and that the most important thing for us in being able to uh, really have that abundant life today is to have a fullness of the Holy Ghost. And so we will see when Daniel is able to help um, to interpret dreams, that he does so by the power of the spirit, whereas the other astrologers and magicians and so forth in the court are kind of flummoxed um, as they live that life. But I was very struck by Elder Pearson's talk. Uh, and, and especially as we were talking about preparing for Daniel, the, the correlation there, uh, that the stronger we adhere to our covenants, the, the more powerful the Holy Ghost, the influence of the Holy Ghost will be in our lives. I agree with that. And that, and to me, that that's actually um, most visually captured by the miracles Daniel engages in. He always engages in something that's viewed as peculiar. He's, people are always like, why are you doing that? And then it ends up resulting in this amazing miracle. There's a, to me, Daniel is a, is a, is a perfect example of meekness. Where he has all this power, but it's constrained. And I have a, a quote that, um, or it's a little poem that was uh, written by a gal named um, Mary Carr. It appeared in the Atlantic back in uh, the 2002. And it's my absolute favorite poem about horses. <laughs> and this, this statue I have right here reminds me of this because meekness to me is this idea of a horse that, that has a bridle, that's someone that's willing to follow that spirit, someone that has power, but is also willing to, to listen. And this is what the quote says. And again, this is from the Atlantic that was, and it was written by, um, by Mary Carr. She writes, not the bristle bearded Igors bent under burlap sacks, not peasants knee deep in rice paddy muck, nor the serfs whose quarter moon sickles make the wheat fall in waves they don't get to eat. My friend, the Franciscan nun says, we misread the word meek in the Bible verse that blesses them. To understand the meek, she says, picture a great stallion at full gallop in a meadow who at, the, at his master's voice seizes up to a stunned but instant halt. So with the strain of holding that great power in check, the muscles along the arched neck keep eddying and only the velvet ears prick forward awaiting the next order. That visual of meekness is so powerful, and and I and I've had moments in my life like this, Linda, where um, and I'm not all perfect at it. I've had moments where I haven't been meek, <laughs> where I charge ahead, and because I want to go climb a mountain or push something up a hill. But when I have found in my life, when I can channel that type of meekness, where I trust that regardless of my situation, Christ has a path for me. He's leading me. He's giving me direction, and if I listen to Him, a miracle is going to happen. 
And so I, 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 I pause and I listen and I try and I try and put my ears forward like that horse is described and wait for the order. And that, that's a really difficult pose to maintain, but there's so much power in it. And so I, I love that Daniel ends up demonstrating this level of meekness as we go through some of these stories. What do you think about that? That's really powerful. And I think it's so interesting in contrast to chapter two, which is the next story, where Nebuchadnezzar is really concerned, basically, how long is he going to hold power and how long will his posterity hold power after him? So the opposite of Daniel's meekness is this sense of I want control and I want control over men. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because he's worried about what's going to happen. And what I find so fascinating is that Babylon was only in power for less than 100 years. And yet it made such a distinct mark on history that it's still used to personify a powerful, delicious kingdom that's enticing. Um, And so he's, he's had this dream and he doesn't want to tell his wise men what it's about. He's trick. He's sort of testing them. Mm -hmm. He says it's gone from me, but if we went to the original um, translation, it would say it was, it was sure with me reminds me of Pharaoh and Joseph. And basically that dream is who's going to be in charge, who's going to control all the rest of mankind for the rest of time. You want to pick it up? Yeah, no, I, I love this because it, there's, a, there's a number of layers here. So um, Daniel ends up saying to the king, um, <clears throat> there, there is not a man on the earth that can show the king this matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, no ruler. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. This, forgive me. This is in verse 10. The wise men say, hey, how, there's no, no one on earth can tell you what your dream was. That's crazy. And so um, Daniel answers with, with um, answers the king, and he basically says, I can interpret the dream if you give me a little bit of time. I can tell you what the dream is, and I can interpret it. Now, I, I believe Daniel's ability to receive a dream that someone else had is basically the ability to see something that, is, that exists spiritually, a manifestation of, of the spirit. And it, it was only possible because Daniel had taken the first step in being peculiar. He had exercised his meekness by not defiling himself with the king's meat and the king's wine. And it's an interesting thing to, for us to dissect and learn from as well, because if you understand, there's a principle here that if you defile yourself, you can't have the spirit. You can go deeper and you can say, if I keep myself pure, I can have the spirit. If I keep myself open and receptive and meek, I can have dreams. And that's a promise that all of us have been given. There's, there's a couple of great talks by the apostles that talk about how you can grow in the strength of dreams. You can exercise that muscle and there's things you can do. You know, one of the things that um, I've practiced in my life that I found great blessing from is writing down a question at night, praying, going to sleep, having a dream, waking up, writing down whatever I can remember from that dream and doing that consistently. And I've been able to have revelatory dreams. And I think all of us can have that opportunity. And I, that's, I believe, essentially what Daniel does here. He knows he, goes, he can go to the source of the dream and he can receive it. He can understand it and he can discern it. Why don't you keep going with that? Well, I love your process there that you shared that what you do. I have to say that by far the strongest revelation I've received in my life is through dreams. Um, really powerful. And when you use the word meek, I find that those revelatory dreams are so humbling that I just, you know, I literally just want to fall to my knees and I can't, I cannot um, deny in any way that they have come through the spirit. So I want to add my testimony to yours that the Lord will answer the sincere desires of our heart. 
but specifically if like Daniel, the Lord knows we're willing to follow. So he's not going to give us an answer that would be to our condemnation. In other words, an answer just for playfulness to, you know, a what if scenario, but it has to be that we have a sincere desire in our heart that like Daniel, we're going to do whatever it is the Lord tells us to do like your horse. I love that, the, that sense of the horse who's listening. Um, and so I, I love that. And I, I do want to bear my testimony about that too, that truth. And in fact, you know, uh, President Nelson has been a prophet, a tr tremendously revelatory prophet. And from the very, very start, he has encouraged us that we also learn the various ways that we can receive revelation. And so this situation with Daniel is really quite a powerful one. If you think, I mean, they think that he was somewhere between 14 and 17. Now, how soon this specific situation with Nebuchadnezzar happened with the dream after Daniel being taken captive, we don't know, but he's pretty young. And you compare that to this man who's been in charge of all these armies and built the city and then probably the other wise men in the court. And Daniel had to be really humble to receive this and what it must have been like for him to go in and say, I'm so sure of what the Lord has revealed to me that I'm going to go ahead and not only tell you what you dreamed, but I'm also going to give you the interpretation of the dream at that same time. Right. Right. And I, I love that you say that you highlight this idea that the Lord won't give us a dream unless we're going to do something with it. Elder Oaks came and spoke um, back when he was an elder. President Oaks came and spoke in my mission in Romania. And he taught about Moroni's reference to that idea and how Moroni refers to that as real intent. You can go ask an academic question. You can ask the Lord. And this is this is from President Oaks. He told he taught us you can, you know, he had an investigator who would have been reading the Book of Mormon for 15 years and hadn't joined the church yet. And he met with this, uh, this husband, he, the husband paid, uh, of this wife and sweet family. They were all members. He wasn't. And he'd been paying tithing. He'd been going to church. He was a dry Mormon, right? <laughs> is what he said. He'd done everything but get baptized. And, and he said he hadn't gotten baptized because he hadn't read the book. He didn't know if the Book of Mormon was true or not. And President Oaks explained to us as missionaries, he said, if you go ask the Lord an academic question, like how far is it from here to the moon? you might get an answer, but the Lord really only gives revelatory answers when you're ready to do something about it. So since a sincere heart, like Moroni says, is you want to know, but real intent means you're going to do something about it. You're going to act on it. And Daniel does that here. He's, he's in that full power of meekness and he goes and he seeks the dream and explains it to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now there's some wonderful talks given about this that describe that dream and how there's the, the head it's gold and it goes all the way down to the feet and it, of different qualities until it degrades to the feet with with clay and iron and there have been many talks given about how certain parts of the statue are different kingdoms the gold head being nebuchadnezzar and babylon and you go down to the greeks and the macedonians and the different groups that have gone and uh, on fighting over this area and having authority and power and the stone that gets cut out of the mountain without hands is the kingdom of God that rolls forth and destroys the statue and replaces it with a new form of government. So just to kind of unpack this from uh, my perspective, and I really want to know what, what you think about this too, Linda, the, it's interesting because I think it's important for us to look at this from the perspective of what's the role of the kingdom and what's the role of the church. Joseph Smith has a great quote where he talks about what the church is and what the kingdom is. And he was explaining this to 
the Council of 50, and it was in uh, Come Follow Me a little while ago. And Joseph Smith explained to the Council of 50 in April, excuse me, uh, the Council of 50 in April 1844, quote, there is a distinction between the church of God and kingdom of God. The laws of the kingdom are not designed to affect our salvation hereafter. It is an entire distinct and separate government. The church is a spiritual matter and a spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom, which Daniel saw, was not a spiritual kingdom, but was designed to be got up for the safety and salvation of the saints by protecting them in their religious rights and worship, end quote. That's Council of 50 Minutes, April 18th, 1844, and I'll <clears throat> provide that as a footnote in um, the Come Follow Me notes here, but I think it's, I just want to unpack that a little bit. If you look, there is a material distinction between the church and the kingdom. The, the, the kingdom that Joseph Smith and Daniel are talking about that goes forward and destroys the statue is a form of government designed to protect the agency of men. It's designed to facilitate freedom, the same agency and freedom and liberty that we fought over in a pre-existence. It needs to allow for good choices and wrong choices. It needs to allow for people to make mistakes. And so the kingdom is uh, that Joseph Smith and Daniel are talking about, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that fills the whole earth, is replacing kings with presidents, with this new structure where there's a form, some semblance of a constitutional democracy or some type of republic or something like this. President Oaks gave a talk about this three conferences ago, where he talked about how Daniel 2's stone that cut, was cut out of the mountain without hands, that, that prom, prophecy had been fulfilled, and there are only three countries on the planet today that don't have a constitution. Now, some of those countries that do maybe don't respect the full constitution, like Russia has some issues with it, honoring their constitution, and you can see what's happening with the civil unrest. But the idea of replacing kings and monarchs and czars and these emperors with presidents and giving more power and agency to the voice of the people is what's captured in this idea of the kingdom. Do you want to add to this, Linda? I don't mean to talk the whole time. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I feel like you come from a unique perspective, especially for those who may not be aware that you're an attorney. So I feel like you come from a unique perspective on this. Plus, your all of your study about Zion, because I feel like there is a connection. So I appreciate your sharing. I just want to point out that in terms of the um, interpretation of the dream, as you said, uh, our our listeners or our watchers can go to many sources and and in almost a amazing detail, we can see the fulfillment of each empire that followed after. And as you've pointed out, um, each of those empires showed a tremendous amount of inhumanity and force, coercion, control, manipulation over their people. And that's why it's so fascinating, the sense that that this um, kingdom that's cut out of the mountain would fill the whole earth and in fact, break apart what's left, what's remaining of the 10 toes or the 10 specific countries mm -hmm. that uh, would break apart. So my question to you, Sam, is of course, this probably the question everybody's asking, where are we in that right now um I, is, I, yeah, is, the, is the kingdom of god uh flourishing and building up or are we in the days that are prophesied in the book of revelation and also by uh, nephi where the um the the abominable church so to speak or the uh the church of satan um is is looking like they're winning over the church of the lamb uh it, 
anyway, that's my question to you, Sam. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I, I, well, I, I, I have to say unabashedly, I don't know for sure, but I have a thought and I, I think it's a great question. Um, and you have to contrast, I love that you bring up Nephi. You have to contrast Daniel with Nephi because Nephi has a vision of the last days and he talks about how the saints and the church will be small upon the earth that there will be a smaller gathering. And so I think this underscores what Joseph Smith was talking about. You have the kingdom that fills the whole earth that's designed to protect the agency of man. And then you have the church, which is designed to protect the salvation and facilitate the ordinances of, of salvation and help us tie ourselves to Christ like Daniel's doing with his own life. And Nephi says that group is small and the, and the great and abominable church, the whore of all the earth is wreaking havoc with the people's ability to find the truth. This is the reason there, there are so many lots because they know not where to find the truth. And so that contrast between the church and the kingdom, I, I believe we are definitely still in a place where the kingdom is flourishing from an agency standpoint. It has for a long time. We've had more democracy. We've broken down kingdoms with democratic, democratic rule. But you see it creeping back in. You see kingdoms falling. You see, or you see uh, governments, the democratic governments that are either becoming more puppet-like or they're becoming just facades of, of this agency. And so there's this tension and I, 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 can't, I can't give you a direct answer, Linda. All I know is that I believe that it's up to us to facilitate the kingdom. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I wanted to share something from Daniel Wells that was written at about the same time that Joseph Smith was first teaching on this topic about the responsibility that we have. But before I do, I do want to just say again in regard to Nephi and the Book of Mormon, a lot of people think that Nephi and Daniel would have been pretty close to the same age. Mm -hmm. And so um, I love putting those books side by side and seeing how, first of all, how similar they are. Um, but then also Nephi's vision with this, because um, I think that it's really important for us to remember, it says that this is going to fill the whole earth and it will never be taken from the earth uh, because we live in times as Nephi predicted in his vision and John predicted in the book of Revelation, when the saints will feel that they're overcome, when the saints will grow tired and, and feel they're all, they're all alone. And so uh, we have a responsibility to be like Daniel and Nephi in our unique situation of standing up. So this is what Elder Daniel uh, Wells um, said the saints have to do in order to receive that kingdom. In other words, that kingdom isn't just going to be God creates this kingdom and, and opens the gates and we get to walk in and all is well. Uh, this is what he said. I've often been asked the question, when will the kingdom be given into the hands of the saints of the most high God? And I've always answered it in this way. Just so soon as the Lord finds that he has a people upon the earth who will uphold and sustain that kingdom, who shall be found capable of maintaining its interests and of extending its influence upon the earth. When he finds that he has such a people, a people who will stand firm and faithful to him, a people that will not turn it over into the lap of the devil, then and not until then will he give the kingdom into the hands of the saints of the Most High in its power and influence when it shall fill the whole earth. It depends in a great measure upon the people themselves as to how soon the kingdom spoken of by Daniel shall be given into the hands of the saints of God when we shall prove ourselves faithful in every emergency that may arise and capable to contend and grapple with every difficulty that threatens our peace and welfare. 
and to overcome every obstacle that may tend to impede the progress of the church and kingdom of God upon the earth. Then our heavenly father will have confidence in us and then he will be able to trust us. Mm. Yeah, powerful. And I look to Daniel, Nephi, and Joseph of Egypt as examples of how to be that person. So for me, when I read something like that, Sam, I'm always thinking about how does this relate to Zion and receiving Zion? And I yes. think you're the expert on Zion. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know about that, but I definitely love it. I, you know, um, I, there's a couple of things that I think we can do to accelerate. I think Zion will come as quickly as we're willing to receive it as well. And uh, it's there. I would just highlight quickly three things. One is engage in, in mighty prayer, like Daniel did. Uh, calling on the Lord in moments of emergency is the only way to become more like the Lord. It's the only way for us to tie ourselves to Him, and not think that we can do it with our arm, with our, our own arm of the flesh. Not think that we can use our own intelligence and our own wisdom. I mean, the Lord wants us to use those things, but. It's like President Hinckley used to say, you get on your knees and pray like it all depends on the Lord, and then you get up and work like it all depends on you. There's this, this synergy of total reliance on the Lord and doing everything you can in your power to make things happen. So when we have those emergencies, seeking the Lord in those moments in mighty prayer, and what I mean, what I mean by mighty prayer is pouring our hearts out to him, finding time consistently. And Daniel does this three times a day. He gets on his knees and he seeks the Lord, and he does it publicly, not 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 to, for show, but he's not afraid. He's not afraid. I I don't know what you think about this, Linda, but I just on this topic of prayer, I I've often wrestled within myself. Do you say a prayer when you're in a in a restaurant <laughs> over the food? Do you say a prayer when you're um, you know at a meeting before you go eat some food or something? You know, and this this idea is in Daniel's perspective is of course you do. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you pray? Who can, you know, even if you're going to be thrown like the next story to the lion's den, you're going to pray. So we can talk about that story in a minute, but the, the mighty prayer is a big key, key component. And I think another element of us accelerating or receiving or showing that we'll defend the kingdom is we need to throw our arms around people that aren't like us. There are so many members of the kingdom that look different than us. They don't wear white shirts and ties. They may have different colors of hair. They may be looking like they're, you know, in a rock band or that they do drugs or they smell like smoke or smell like alcohol, whatever it is, but they're part of the kingdom in a way that we have the duty to go and show them love and show them compassion and invite them to truth. I'm not talking about enabling love where you just tell somebody, you're fine, you're good, God loves you the way you are. No, God, God's always calling us up to change, right? But we need to throw our arms around these people, these members of the kingdom, because we can't do this alone. We can't build Zion without them. Go ahead. Well, and to recognize that we have things to learn from them as well. Yes. So for example, um, a wonderful book I just finished reading and, and uh, have spoken with the author, Jason Olson, it's the book called The Burning Book. Um, mm. He, he uh, was raised Jewish, was serious enough about his faith and his culture that he was considering becoming a rabbi when he was in high school to train to be a rabbi. And he had um, LDS friends uh, in his high school that shared the Book of Mormon with him. And a lot of, it's a quite a beautiful story. I don't want to, to shortchange it at all. So please read it. But, but in essence, he can't deny he, God tells him the Book of Mormon is his book. And so Jason um, is, a, is a very unique blend. He does join the church. And in fact, he's a chaplain for the Navy today. 
And, um, and the point is, is that um, unfortunately for Jason and for many other Jewish converts and converts from various faiths, um, they're basically told to leave their culture behind. And Jason's culture, specifically the, the degree of reading he has done and the worship of God that he has done, can actually bless members of the church, knowing about yes. his culture can help to aid the sense of their own worship and understanding of what it means to be a covenant people. But many members of the church have kind of pushed against that um, and, you know, say, just leave that behind your LDS now, so to speak. But it's not, and as Jason points out, this doesn't pertain only to Jews, but to to many others. And there's many wonderfully um, committed Christians who have something to share for, share with us that are, as you put it, part of the kingdom. Now, how does that fold in? I'd love to have you talk about how that folds into what we know about the kingdom in the millennium. Well, what a a great point. Thank you. You know, that's great. And I'll have to check out that book, the the burning book, because the the idea of, even that idea is is so Jewish, this idea of uh, his divine presence or celestial fire in the book, right? Well, when, when we get to the, when we do get to the millennial reign, Bruce R. McConkie has been uh, very clear. And I think this underscores the difference between the church and the kingdom. There will be multiple churches. There's not just going to be one true church. And the, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the priesthood power to manifest the power of godliness through the ordinances of the gospel. And what that means is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the priesthood power to help people become like our heavenly parents, to help people progress and gain salvation and reconnection with heaven and divine, divine connection. And, and we're going to progress as we get ready for millennial interaction, where we're connecting back with that higher level of, of law and love. We're going to progress from just focusing on ourselves, the law of the celestial kingdom being love of self. And we're going to progress this higher level of love of others and love of self and the terrestrial kingdom, which is really what, what the state that we're going to be at in the millennium. And in that realm, there's still going to be lots of choice because the love of God is the celestial law. That's the next step above that. And until someone really learns for themselves how to love God and worship him and partake of his ordinances and live the gospel the way that Christ set up and Joseph Smith restored as as, as the restorer of the church, until someone follows those ordinances, they're, they're not in a place where they can fully, completely reconnect with God. And so Bruce R. McConkie has explained there will be many churches, there will be officers in God's kingdom that are not necessarily officers in God's church because they're focused on protecting the agency of people. And this, this goes back to this idea of what you're talking about. Of people have other things to offer, other cultures have many things to offer. Linda, I believe that the Native Americans, the remnant, the African Americans, the Africans, the, um, the, the Europeans, the you know, wherever you go in the world, these different cultures, Egyptians, uh, Arabians, whoever it is, they have gifts and talents that we desperately need. They have beautiful things that are meant to be manifest in the kingdom of God. They have glory inside them, divinity inside them that's supposed to be manifest. And unless we open our hearts and receive them and throw our arms around them and welcome them into the kingdom of God and say, hey, you're part of it, we're part of it, we're all on the same team. Unless we do that, we're missing so much. And it really, that's why the beauty of the symbol of the rainbow is such a powerful symbol of Zion and of this kingdom, because there are different colors and the colors are, are unified and they're harmonious, and they, but they're also distinct. And it's okay. It's okay that people are different. It's actually meant to be that way. It's more glorious. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you that gathering to me is a, on a much wider scale than than we recognize. And it's yes. not the gathering is not to make everyone look like us or no. not to make everyone think like us. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I love that. <laughs> Thanks. I, I, I love talking about it because I think it gives us a reminder. I, growing up in Utah, I remember looking around at people and I remember being in the Provo bubble and I would see people different than myself. And I remember going, you know, feeling like I should, that, that was the right way, the quote unquote right way. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to DC and working for Senator Hatch and meeting a number of people who weren't members of the, of the church. And they came to me and they um, became good friends. Um, one, one man worked for the secret, uh, he was a secret service officer and he was incredible. And he was from Kentucky and he had so much faith. And I looked at him and I became his friend and I was like, you're awesome. And it just gave me so much faith in America. And it opened up my eyes to the reality that we don't have a monopoly on the kingdom. We definitely have a rightful claim to priest ordinances and the right way for the church. Jesus went to John the Baptist to get baptized because he went to someone with authority. There's all sorts of scriptures to talk about. You have to go to someone with authority. The apostles talk about that consistently. But the kingdom where people can have faith and make miracles happen and make beautiful things that help us point to point all of our hearts to God. The kingdom is broad and rich and diverse and divergent. And it's, it's awesome. It's meant and to be I, that way. I love, you know, again, I love your unique perspective, Sam, um, in terms of all of this, because I think it's important when we're talking about this to note that we're told that in the millennium that Christ will reign from Jerusalem and his word, or in other words, the spiritual religious part of our governance will come from there. And then the law will come forth from the new Jerusalem, or we might say the political sides of things. And so right now we're living in, in a, correct, uh, a correct order of a separation of uh, church and state. Yes. But in the, in the millennium and part of this whole kingdom and church dynamic, we're going to have both a political and a spiritual arm under Jesus Christ. Right, and, right. And yeah, that's why he's ahead. called that's why he's called the King of Kings yes. and the Lord of Lords. Yes. The King over the kingdom and the Lord over the church. And that's why there's this distinction between the two, the harmony of even the idea of church and state, we get from the Lord Himself, where that He's creating room for us to, to figure out who we really are and how to connect with Him. Sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I love it. I love your perspective. That's what I'm saying. And I'd love you to share more. But I think also what we really want to look at is as wonderful it is to, to read these stories of Daniel and his friends is how does that apply to us today mm. and how do we prepare ourselves so what do you think on that well I, I think that brings us to the next two stories and we can tell these and then kind of delve into some of those principles and wrap up but Daniel is um, in a situation with a couple of different kings Nebuchadnezzar and then later on um, with, with his heir with Darius where the Lord where he's commanded not to pray and uh, his friends Shadrach Meshach and Abednego are um and, and um, Daniel's kind of caught in the hair of this as well. They're, they're commanded to stop praying. And instead, they should bow down and worship the idol that was created for the king. Whenever they hear music, whenever they hear harp or anything like this, which is interesting because it's very, it's very similar to this idea of how we worship God. We're meant to worship God with music and with these instruments and things, not the other way around. And they won't bow down. And so they get they get caught and uh, they get in trouble with the king and they get thrown into a fiery furnace. And there's this beautiful miracle, this powerful, powerful miracle where they're thrown into the furnace and it's extremely hot. 
It's so hot that when they're thrown in the furnace, the people throwing them into the furnace die. And as they're, as they're in the furnace, they look inside and they see that it's not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but there's a fourth person there with them in the similitude of the Son of God. And so many people interpret that to mean Christ was there with them in the fire as they're being condemned to death in the, in the depth of that judgment of Babylon. They come out on top and they, they're, they're brighter and more pure and they burn more more strongly than the, than the flames that they're cast into and Christ is there with them. I, I just think this is such an incredible miracle. What do you think about this? It is. And it's really, you know, in terms of looking at the history is helpful. And I think you brought up something about this before about what do you do when you're in a work situation is that Darius was the new Persian king that replaced the Babylonian king. Mm -hmm. And so Daniel and his friends are still, this is what's amazing. They must've been so exceptional because they, they serve several successive kings that are according to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of one empire taking over another. And they are still considered wise men. They're still considered trusted counselors. So imagine that we've just had this change of hands in the political arena of who's in charge. And Daniel and his friends are told, you've got to prove your loyalty. Again. You know, are you, you're, going to lose your, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your position. You have to prove your loyalty by mm -hmm. bowing to the statue and that they won't do it. And so I wonder what that can teach us in our own time, not just in a work situation, but in political situations where people are very, very divided today. And, um, you know, we might have somebody that we feel really good about on one, one angle of their political stance, but maybe, for example, we're, we're really concerned about their stance on abortion. Mm -hmm. oh, what, 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 what can we learn from Daniel and his friends about, again, they weren't contentious, right? They were not they were not holding signs. They were not rioting. They weren't breaking down the buildings. No. But boy, their voice became so powerful that the king sent a decree that said, "Their gods, the god over all the gods, and don't let right. any, don't let anybody speak against their god." So, I I love that because honestly, that their situation was not any easier than our current situation of learning how to speak up and stand up. I was approached by a friend last night in my ward um, who's concerned about some of the things that are being taught to the youth, specifically um, things against the, the church doctrine and church uh, policies and handbook mm -hmm. and, uh, and was concerned and said, you know, how do, how do we voice that today? How do we voice that? Because we don't want to be seen as contentious uh, we don't want to be considered apostate mm -hmm. or not, not supportive of leaders and of others. So, you know, again, I look to, to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, how did they stand up? And they still noticed they still earned the respect of those kings they were serving. Right, right. And I think you're hitting on something that's critical to understand. The church is not going to go be politically active. That's right. It's, it's just not going to do that. And I think so many of us think that we, we're waiting for the prophet to come out and say, hey, let's go be like Captain Moroni or Tiankum or uh, Daniel or these, these yep. fearless leaders. That's up to us. We're the ones that have to fight for the agency of men. We're the ones that have to defend the Constitution. We're the ones that have to say to tyranny, back down, go back in your dark corner. Because unless we do it, the kingdom is not going to rise the way it's supposed to. 
we, we need to stand up in those emergent situations in those places of terror and seek the Lord and, and do what's right. And it's tough because doctrinally, culturally, we've been ingrained with this idea that there is a division between church and state. And I don't know if many viewers understand this, but the Supreme Court actually just came back and unwound a lot of that <laughs> in some of the recent decisions and said, no, you do have a right to pray at school and you're not going to get in trouble if you do it. And you do have a right to stand up for your beliefs. And the First Amendment does protect religious liberty. And we shouldn't be sitting on our laurels or sitting or waiting around for the church to tell us to do good stuff. That This last general conference where they talked about, <laughs> one of the apostles talked about going and doing good of our own good. One of the things, for example, that my wife and I are doing here in Las Vegas, the Clark County School District and the school districts here in Nevada are all tied to county sizes. The Clark County School District is 8,000 square miles. It's the fifth largest in the nation. And it is one of the worst. It has 300,000 students and it regularly is last across all academic measures. And it's also regularly the worst at child suicide, child homelessness, child prostitution and trafficking, teacher abuse. I mean, there's so many problems. You have a 2% chance of reading at your education level if you're African-American in the Clark County School uh, District. 2%, that's within the margin of error. So it may not even actually be legit. And so my wife and I looked at this and we were like, we're gonna, we're gonna do what we can to break up the school district. We're gonna figure out a way to let cities opt out and create communities and, and protect the agency of man. Like Moroni says, I don't seek for power, I seek to tear it down. That's what the kingdom's about. It's about removing the congestion, the, the consolidation of power, the bureaucratic bloat that comes when people try and kingdom build for themselves. It's about removing that, tearing it down and making room for people to be individuals, to be communal, to be able to seek God the way that God meant them to seek instead of having to bow down to a false idol, a false system, a false structure. That's, that's what this is all about. And so I just hope anybody listening understands you can make a difference. You can put a crack in the wall of Babylon. You can tear down the false structures and the false idols and make room for the true and living God, who's the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. And the sooner we do that, the sooner we add our voices to it, the more quickly we're preparing his way, making straight his paths and, and building room for Zion to, to finally rise up to return to God above. So I just get energized about this topic because there's so much we can do. And if we sit back and we don't do it, it's not going to happen. So we need to stand up and go say, hey, let's let's use whatever resources, whatever power, whatever voice, whatever muscle, whatever intelligence we have, let's go make room for the kingdom of God. Well, in fact, and I don't know if, how much more time we have here, but <laughs> yeah. one, one thing I think is really important to note is that the Jews who before had been uh, accused by their prophets of being apostate and end up being scattered because they were apostate and involved in idol worship something that is extremely admirable about them as a people is that when they hit Babylon, they're like, oh, all those prophets were right. Mm -hmm. And we have the rise of the synagogue and the various groups and where people for the first time are distributing scriptures to everyone because they're like, we all need to know our scriptures so that we don't ever make this mistake again. And one thing the Jews are known for I mean, yes, everyone is an individual and there's no central governing board of, a, of the Jewish religion. But one thing they're known for is to be completely devoted to one God and no idol worship. And the fact is, is that with, with Daniel and his friends, but also the Jewish people as a whole, they ended up earning tremendous respect 
from the Babylonians, later the Persians and Medes who took over, and even the Greeks who took over after them. So right. that these kings, and this is what's really important, these kings, Gentile kings, ended up assisting the Jewish people, giving them money and everything to go back to Jerusalem, build the temple, gave them back the temple treasures. Well, that didn't happen in just one day. That happened because of the example of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the Jewish people and how they behaved when they were in captivity so yes. that they earned this respect. Yes, yes. They, they stood out as a peculiar people. And the last example we have is this idea of Daniel worshiping the Lord, praying to the God, to, to the God of Israel, the God of the King of, of Kings and the Lord of Lords, even when he's commanded not to, and he gets cast into the lion's den. Now Darius is is brokenhearted. Like you can it, this is a beautiful story about how Darius has come to recognize that Christ is king, that uh, Daniel's God is the God of the earth. So just to kind of back up, we have this this amazing example of Darius evidencing his faith in, in the Lord of lords and king of kings and when daniel gets uh cast into the lion's den because he's unwilling to pray to anyone but god <clears throat> darius expresses such sincere remorse that this is going to happen but says no we're good your, your god's going to take care of you and then daniel ends up getting put in the lion's den and darius goes home and he fasts and prays all night long and then comes back the next morning and opens the stone that had been put over the, the lion's den and he sees Daniel. And I'm going to put a picture up of that right here because it's just such a, that, uh, the, the paintings on this are so powerful. He sees Daniel <clears throat> down below, strong, safe, alive, and the lion's mouths had been shut by the angels. And then very similar to the other experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Darius ends up declaring, this is the God of gods. This is the God of the whole earth. No one should mess with this God. <laughs> he can shut the mouths of lions. And so I, I think to your point, Linda, we, 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 need to, we need to be willing to stand up as examples in those times of emergency. We can find Christ in the moments of distress. When none but the Lord can deliver, that is when he shows up. And that is when we can connect with him and see him in the distress and see him in the emergency and know that he is a God of salvation. He's a God of deliverance. He's a God of, of a kingdom and of a church. And I just, I look forward to those opportunities. I, I, they're painful, they're difficult, they're stressful, but the rejoicing, the, the swelling in our hearts, the, the fulfillment, the fatness that we get to enjoy, the feast we get to experience with the spirit after the, that strain is worth it. It's 10 times more valuable than the cost. And so I just, I hope we, we look for those moments. I hope we seek him when, when none but the Lord can deliver in meekness, trusting he'll teach us what to do. I love that. And trusting that he's there with us, even when we feel very alone, he's there. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, I think we should end there because I think it's been an hour. <laughs> uh, I, I am delighted to be able to do this with, with you, Linda. It's always such a treat. And I hope those that are listening Will know that um, they can have miracles in their lives and we we need each other we need to have these miracles happen we need to seek the lord in all of our experiences and i testify that christ is building his kingdom he is building his church and it's more glorious than we can possibly imagine i believe that in the name of jesus christ amen amen